0: Assalamu alaykum wa wa barakatuh Thank you very much for joining us again for another Dean Chat show with myself, uh, Ridwan Ahmed and my host, co-host, Sunil. <laughs> and inshallah, we've got our special beloved teacher and uh, local scholar, mm-hmm. Sheikh Aswad Rashid. as alaikum alaykum Sayyidi. Wa
1: alaykum as rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Thank you very much for joining us today. Hopefully it wasn't too much of a journey. Ahlan wa sahlan, I've just walked around Corner to the Muslim, alhamdulillah. So, we'll, we'll just say it was a long journey, inshallah. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's okay.
0: inshallah. But no, Jazak and thank you for taking the time out. Um, inshallah, I always like doing these podcasts to give Muslims a chance to see and listen to something alternative. Uh, give the Muslim community in the UK and beyond positive role of uh, inshallah. So, we want to begin like we always do in our, on our way of an icebreaker. InshaAllah So we want to ask a couple of questions Just to ease us into the podcast So our first question Sayyidi for you is If you could spend uh, Some time With the exception of Sayyidina Muhammad One Prophet Who would it
1: be And why And what would you ask them Sayyidi? My selection in that regard would be Sayyidina Khidr alayhi salam And uh, I would firstly Question him regarding all the people that he has met, because we know Sayyidina Hidra Ali Sarab, many of the commentators of the Quran say he is alive from the time of Sayyidina Abdul Karnain Ali So from that time, according to the opinion that he is still alive, which is the chosen chosen position of all the Sufi scholars, but including Hadith scholars like Al-Imam Nawi Rahmanullah, I would ask him with regard to all the events that have transpired from that time. I'm Sure,
0: Sayyidina Khidr will have a lot of knowledge, and maybe you could also ask, like, we'll something regarding the child who got killed and all the.
1: Yes, so the story didn't continue, but the additional details yeah. could be as. And there is also the possibility of a Muslim meeting Sayyidina Khidr, a. but which of the Prophet, Sayyidina Isa, a. because Sayyidina Isa a. A. shall return. So there will be Muslims of the future generations who will meet a Prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala.
0: Alhamdulillah.
1: So who would be your next Prophet? You said
0: you had several, so let's go for one last one. Sayyiduna Musa. Oh, Masha'Allah.
1: Okay. And what would you ask him? With regard to his muqadama with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mukadama is conversation with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alhamdulillah, you would see what that conversation was, the intimacy.
0: And how you would, I guess, phrase a question when speaking to Allah, Jalla
2: Jalla, <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Um, our next question. Our next question, Seyyidi, is, which Sahaba inspires you the most and why? Well, with this
1: question, I'm going to skip the famous companions Ali Muridwan, the likes of Sayyiduna Abu Waqr siddiq yeah. Sayyiduna Umar, Sayyidina Uthman, Sayyidina Ali, Sayyidina Imam Hassan, or Sayyid, Allah Anhu, Majma'i, after those companions, you have Abu Ubaida Ibn Jarrah, the commander under the armies of Sayyiduna Umar Radiyallahu when the armies were dispatched to Asham, and you have Sayyiduna Mu'adh Bin Jabal Radiyallahu The first, because the leadership skills, but also working under the Khalifa, how he obeyed the commands of the Khalifa and carried out the conquests and governance under the caliphate of Sayyidina umar the an and with regard to Sayyidina muadh bin jabal an firstly his connection to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he left for yemen and he wept because of his departing the company of the messenger of allah sallallahu and then he returned later in the caliphate of Sayyidina umar radiyallahu an but also because he was known as a faqih a jurist so he was instrumental in the dissemination of the knowledge of Al-Fiqh. In the Yemen region? In the Yemen region and later in Asham also. So he also passed away in Asham
2: Sharif, okay.
1: in Greater Syria.
2: Alhamdulillah. Okay. It's the Mu'ad, the one that the Prophet okay. met him, and You won't see me after this. And then he starts, his screams could be heard all, all over. So he stopped weeping. Oh, subhan. And then the Messenger of Allah sallallahu sallam, said, Do not weep,
1: O Mu'ad. Because the closest to me are the ones who are what? At-qa-a, atqa meaning the most God-fearing people. Meaning a lesson for, for all of us. The more taqwa we adopt, the closer we are to the Prophet. Alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam.
0: Alhamdulillah, Sayyidi. Okay, so what, what about the qualities you like about the Sahaba? I think you've touched on it here. What qualities of them really stand out for you, Sayyidi? Your studies of the Sahaba?
1: So, with the companions, Ali, the diversity. Mm-hmm. So the companions, the jama'a, the, com- the group of the companions can be referred to as the, the result of the madrasa of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam So you see the variant personalities within the companions Ali Muridwan. Mm-hmm. The, the diversity within them. Because every Muslim cannot model himself completely upon the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam because the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is total perfection. And we cannot be total perfection. We follow him, meaning following his sunnah. But we, how shall we emulate him? Mm. We emulate him by observing the companions' of Ali Muridwan.
2: So there is a companion that fits the personality types of every type of Muslim. Okay. I have a follow-up question regarding that stuff. So if if the four main sah say na rabuka, say na Sayyidina Ali, if you could describe them with one word depending on that, like, bearing on their personality, how would you describe them? Uh, the best description
1: would be uh, engrossed in the love of the Messenger of Allah so. Sallallahu
2: wa so. Yeah. so in terms of their personality, Sayyidina Abu Bakr was like, you know, very soft, but Sayyidina, Bakr, Sayyidina Umar was a bit more Jalal and a bit more strict. And
1: Actually Sayyidina Umar, alayhi alayhi, if you read his biography, you will notice that he adopted Islam in his late 20s. So mm-hmm. wh- by the time he was Khalifa, mm-hmm. the personality was because there's character development. Absolutely. So in his older age, Sayyidina Umar mm-hmm. was very soft. In fact, when Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq mm-hmm. waged war against those who were uh, refusing to give the zakat, it was Sayyidina Umar initially objected to waging war against them. And Sayyiduna Abu Bakr Siddiqui held Sayyiduna Umar from the neck and said you were braver in your earlier days and now you have become cowardly. But it was not cowardliness, it was what? The softness of Sayyiduna Umar anh. So you read these stories when you go out into the streets of al Medina and uh, there's one story of the old woman that Sayyiduna Abu Bakr Siddiq would every day go out into some alleyways and Sayyiduna Umar he wanted to know where does he go out. So one day he followed him and they reached. When he followed him, Abu Bakr Siddiq was unaware. He reaches the house of an old woman. Sayyiduna Umar afterwards, after Sayyiduna Abu Bakr Siddiq leaves, knocks the door of the old woman, He finds that it's a blind old woman who had no teeth. Later on, when Sayyiduna Abu Bakr Siddiq passed away, Sayyiduna Umar knew that Sayyiduna Abu Bakr Siddiq was taking food to this old woman every day. So he decided to carry out the same task. When he reaches the house of the old woman, he gives her dates. And she is unaware of the caliph having passed away. Okay. So she takes the dates, she choose them. And then she says, The man who would bring them before, has he passed away? Sayyiduna Umar mm-hmm. Questions her, how did you know he has passed away? She says in response that he would remove the date stone from the dates. Mm-hmm. So these stories regarding the caliphs you read on the Khulafa, Al-Khulafa Al-Rashidun of course, each one of them is inspiring in their own way. Alhamdulillah, So our next question is the following.
0: Uh, which tabi'in would you like to meet? So Sunil,
2: which ones? So you have the options of Zainul Abadeen, Hassan al-Basri, Umar ibn Abdulaziz, or al-Karmi.
1: Uh, Zainul Abdeen, because of his link to the Ahlul Bayt. Okay, so our
0: next question is, if you could spend time with three scholar from the past, who
1: would they be and why? This, of course, is, is excluding the yeah, Sahaba the al, al-, al- yeah. Of course, uh, within that would be Imam Abu Hanifa, and secondly, there would be Imam Muhammad bin Ismail al-Bukhari, and there would be Imam Ahmad bin Hamdar,
2: Okay, Sayyidi, so our next question is the following. Books of so you're in, a, you're in a library or you're on a journey, um, you have to take some books. Is it the books of Imam Ghazali or Imam Juwaini, If You have to pick Imam Abu Hamd al Ghazali because his books
1: expand on the earlier works of Imam Okay. So, like Al Irshad, the, uh, the, the Haftul philosophy is an expansion on that book. Okay, oh. and the our last question for you on this icebreaker is
0: the following. Would you rather have a brick phone or a smartphone?
1: Smartphones are for people who are not so smart. Brick <laughs> phones are that. for other types. This is why I asked the questions. Say, they, Alhamdulillah, they that. that was a good set of questions. Is there a reason that you mm. still use? Do you still use the brick phone? Oh. Yes. Yeah. So the reason for that is so I, the additional applications on the, on these phones are not necessary. Okay are in fact a distraction.
0: Yeah, I agree. So Jeff, in this day and age, <clears throat> where they're trying to make you more impulsive to these apps, so you quickly press it. And I've heard people get agitated when they hear a vibration thinking, is that an email, a message that I need to respond to? So they're constantly at edge, what could that be And, uh, and I guess with these technologies we're getting, you're getting a new set of generation who are hooked naturally, they're just nurturing this. I prefer the
1: lifestyle of the 1990s. Okay. So when you needed to meet someone, you, would you say, it. I would meet you at the masjid at 8 p.m., that would mean you arrive at the masjid at 10 to 8. Yeah, yeah. And if you did need to ring someone, it would be from a
2: landline. <laughs> I <laughs> Following up a question on that side, what would you say to the parents who introduce their kids at a very young age to mobile devices? Mm. They're not good parents. Children should not be given
1: these type of devices at a young age. And they should be weaned off? And even in the early teens, the type of de- uh, devices and the applications that lead to haram and mm. multiple other vices. Mm. Okay, Saidi.
0: So now, let's go back a little bit, Sadie Starting from your journey.
2: Right, Sunil? Where do we want to go from here? So where did you... How did this journey start, in terms of deen? When did you, when were you first, obviously you are born Muslim? So when was it like when you started to look into Islam in a deeper level that you want to study or what was that? Because the trend is now Muslims are just Muslims and they don't really look much into the deen. Especially in the 90s, there was no internet, there was no um, easy access to Islam. So how did you get into that? So
1: two things in that initial period would have inspired me. One is reading books, finding books of ulama and reading translations of various books. But secondly, was when going through one of the masajid in Birmingham, the Sultan Trust Masjid in the 90s, and seeing our teacher at that time, Alama um, Rasul he's standing in a classroom, teaching a group of students. So when entering that classroom, seeing that some of the students were able to speak Arabic, but they had the lithographic editions of early uh, books on legal theory, Usul al-fiqh. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing a copy of Usul al-Shashi and being intrigued. What are they reading? This was the initial introduction to Al-Ilm sharif So there were some s- s- teachers there. There was even one from Luton, Qazi Abdul Aziz, mm-hmm. Naqshbandi. Mm-hmm. I think he's based in Luton now. He even taught us Nahmir in that time in 1997. Meaning early grammar text, so these people inspired us without realizing, and that was the motivation to continue pursuing that. So that that was the early planting of the seed mm-hmm. to pursue further studies. And then where did you see yourself from there? Where did that
0: take you? Your additional.
1: So time? later on, in two thousand, I travelled to Umrah, and with a group of. Students of Knowledge and we went we went for a stopover in Syria twice. So I stopped in Damascus on the way to Umrah. With a group of people who are also students of knowledge and some of them are Ulama And then on the return journey also we stopped. So that stop the first day first time may have been one or two days. Then on the way back it was about a week or something like this. There was a time I spent alone during that journey. I was alone, totally alone, mm-hmm. where I would wander off into the German al Grand Maid Mosque, mm-hmm. meet various Ulama. In that journey, um, I observed some of the Ulama and then I returned back to Syria. Mm-hmm. So that journey led me to study in Syria. So I went back to Syria to study initially the Arabic language, okay. so spoken written, and uh, reading Arabic. And what year was that? 2000? Around that period, okay. And when you went back there, what were your
0: thoughts? Because obviously, you had a particular way of living your life in the UK, in Birmingham.
1: Did you have those luxuries in Damascus? So, when, not only myself, a group of students went to Damascus. We were people who had just reached 17, 18, 19 that age group, N- uh, a number of us went to Damascus University to do the language course in Damascus University but the, the language course was during the mornings so we would have the evenings the late afternoons and the evenings to spend time with various ulama okay. to attend their classes, fiqh classes or whatever science we wanted to pursue. The living standards were quite good in comparison to other places. So many of the students here from Birmingham would study in Pakistan but the standard of living in Pakistan in the madrasas was not a good standard. So people from the west in that period of time over 22 years ago and many people went in the 90s as well. So many people studied from the early 1990s into 2000 and there were many senior people to myself who had studied for a number of years in syria at that time but they found syria very balanced in terms of facilities uh, lifestyle in in the in that regard is there anywhere else you studied as well or just syria as the main place my main studies were within the uk and in syria oh,
0: sure. between those two and what institutes did you study at in syria
1: so when i went to damascus university i did the language course I returned back to England. When I returned back to England, I studied my teacher from mid 2003 to the whole of 2004 in England, completing works like Nurul Anwar, Mullah Jami, uh, doing works like Al-Quduri, Al-Hidayah in Al-Fiqh. We started Al-Hidayah at the time and uh, we didn't complete Al-Hidayah but we started Al-Hidayah uh, we did uh, books like Usul shashi Noor al-Amwar, uh, we started Al-Husami, muntakhab al-Husami and there were a few other books that we did at that time. So, Sayyid, you, know, th- you, you know those books like Khuturi,
0: um, how did you sort of understand what the Sheikh was saying when he was relating to a time that doesn't exist no more? So there's specific trades for example, that industry doesn't exist no more how did you contextualize that? or bring that back. So our
1: teacher, uh, بخصعدي, he is someone who teaches those texts with modern examples. Gotcha. So he doesn't just uh, give you the the juzi, meaning the particular fiqh answer from the book. He he relates it to a to a modern context, mm-hmm. and he's someone who he is into al qadaya al muasira modern issues. So, he's someone who aspires to update some of the fiqh. Alhamdulillah. Okay. And then from there, you did your studies.
0: In this time, how did you keep yourself
1: going financially? Supporting yourself? So, my finances were completely funded by my parents. Allah bless them. Yes. I think, I, think a lot of, I think a lot of people
0: struggle there, don't they? At that stumbling block, finding the resources to get over there. What about your interaction with the Syrian government? Uh, people, regime, well mainly the regime, did you ever encounter any hostility? So
1: I went back to Syria toward the end of 2004 and stayed there until late 2006 and then when I went back again in 2007 and returned in 2008. And during that time they did give problems with Visas because of foreign students that they suspected of either being journalists or Spies from foreign governments So because of that toward the end I had visa problems in 2008 But aside from that there was no problems
2: Okay, inshallah and then Who were your teachers in Syria? Who, who did you study under?
1: So I studied under a number of teachers Initially, I studied uh, with uh, Sheikh uh, Samir al Nas, yes. who I met here in England first. I studied with uh, Sheikh Samir al Nas, I studied with uh, Sheikh Jibreel Haddad, I read the Muqaddimah bi musalah Salah, cover to cover with Sheikh Jibreel Haddad, even during the days when I was in Damascus University. So every Thursday, we would go to his home, which was the home of Sheikh Nazim al-Haqqani. That was his home. home. And Sheikh Jibril would, he, at the time, he was resident in the house with the permission of Sheikh Nazim. And we read the Muqaddimah of Ibn Salah every Thursday. And Sheikh Jibreel is erudite in the field of hadith terminology. Mustala hadith is his field. So he was one of my early teachers. And then that was in the period of 2002 and then 2003. Then in 2004, late 2004, when I returned back uh, to Syria, by the way, in that early period of 2002 and 2003, I met many of the odia life Salehi in Damascus, which Damascus is never empty of those people. In one narration, in fact, well, it's a weak narration, but it says Damascus will always be uh, filled with Zuhad and Ubad, meaning people who abstain from the dunya and people who are what who are worshippers. But there are authentic hadith regarding the Abdal al Sham. So there's a minimum of six authentic hadith on the Abdal al Sham. So many of those Abdal I met in that period. And the students who were cont- contemporaries to, to myself, some of them met people who were more senior than the ones I met. Like there were some of the students who met Shaykh Abdullah Sirajuddin but I never met a Shaykh Abdullah Sirajuddin, So, but I did have the honor of meeting a Sayyid Muhammad bin Alawi Al Mariki in uh, Hajj. So that was in, when I went to Hajj in 2001 and then I met him again in 2004, in Ramadan 2004, uh, I, he died in 2004 also, in the, the, the Ramadan after. Mm-hmm. Did you study anything particular with him? No, not with, uh, not with uh, Sayyid Muhammad bin Ali Ali, just Ijazat. He, gave me, he met me, conversed with me, and many of the people remarked, he's, he was very gentle with me, yeah. as opposed to with, with the other people who were there. He was could, very gentle. Could that be because, say, that you're from the West? So no, there were other Westerners that he was very... Uh, you could say the conversation was tense. But with me, for some reason, he was very uh, soft, uh, softly spoken, uh, very gentle. Uh, and uh, he gave me the ijazat. But later, I, uh, in the, fu- the in the future, I would become very close to his brother, Sayyid Abbas Alawi, rahimahullah, very close. So, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. But in 2003, 2002 and 2003, those were the shiukh that I studied with. Then I went back in late 2004. I studied with Sheikh Muhammad Al Yaqubi. I studied with. Um, uh, Sheikh Muhammad Juma, who is no, uh, no, not Sheikh Ali Juma. So okay. Sheikh Ali Juma is the Mufti of Egypt. Yeah. Sheikh Muhammad Juma, he is the one of the foremost students of Sheikh Abdul Razak Al halabi okay. rahimahullah. So I I would go. studied with him for a number of years because the the whole of 2005, most of 2006, I spent in Syria, mm-hmm. and in that period we read. Kashf al which is a country in Kanzu al We read Shah uh, al-Rahabiyya, we read Maraq al-Falah. We studied uh, numerous texts with Sheikh uh, Mohammed mean, me and the class. and But with him, I had a uh, uh, private time. Similarly with Sheikh uh, Mohammed al-Yaqoubi, there's plenty of private time where we read many texts. Say so, uh, can I just quickly ask you then, so when you were with uh, uh, Mohammed al-Alaoui, in uh, Saudi. Did you ever think you wanted to pursue your studies over there? Yes, so when I met uh, Sayyid Muhammad bin Aluhi mm. a part of our conversation was that I shall return to Mecca al-Karma in order to pursue studies. Mm. So that was the initial plan, but then the Sheikh passed away in the same year. 2006 right? 2004, Four, so. late 2004, December. Mm. Uh, it was in Ramadan, I think the day of Badr, oh. 17th of Ramadan. And would you would you have pursued that
0: if he was around? Or could you have not continued that with his brother, maybe?
1: No, I got to know his brother later in oh. 2010. So in 2010, I was introduced to Sayyid Abbas But in uh, continuing with the list of teachers in Damascus, because Sayyid Muhammad bin Alawi passed away, I would say a Sheikh Nuruddin was a good replacement. So how I... Began studies with the Sheikh Anwar Dinet. They were not private one-to-one studies. What happened was when I arrived in Damascus for this uh, in around late two thousand and four. I one of the mornings after Salatul Fajr, I went to the, one of the Halqat zikr the the Shadi Order, they hold Hadran Zikr uh, gatherings. And I met a Sheikh Shukri Bahafi Rahimullah <laughs> and all these mushaik and then I went to one of the local bookshops. When I went to the local bookshop, I found the work ilam So ilam is a Sheikh Itar's Commentary on Buloog al-Maram. I found only the second volume at the time. So I inquired regarding the book, the other volumes. So they said to me, he has not yet completed volume four. But one of the brothers who, who you will know a Sheikh Danmir, he informed me that Sheikh Idr holds dars for this book, and I, I think Sheikh Amjad Mahmoud as well. He informed me that Sheikh Idr holds a dars in Jami' Shamsiya, which is in Muhajirin district, every Friday evening. And how far was that from where you live? So, where I lived in, in the Sheikh Muhideen area, near the grave of Sheikh Muhideen Ibn Arabi, from that area, it's literally a 50, 10 minute walk. But I wouldn't go from that area. My f- routine on Fridays was after and uh, so, uh, this routine was whenever I was in Syria. After Salatul Fajr in Sheikh Mahidimi ibn arabi Rahimullah's masjid, attending the dhikr gathering held by the Sheikh Ahmed Habad, Rahimullah, then going to the Hammam, <laughs> the local baths, mm-hmm. then having a Musabaha, which is their name for Hummus, mm-hmm. and after the Musabbaha go to Al-Jami' al-Umawi or to uh, Jami' al Sheikh Mullah Ramadan, rahimullah, pray the Salat al-Jum'ah but mainly Al-Jami' al-Umawi after Salat al juma go to the Nuriyah mm. to the Hadra held by the Darqabiya uh, Shadiliya Oudah mm. after the Hadra at the Nuriyah the Nuriyah is where Nuruddin Zangi Rahmallah is buried so after that and they say uh, Mu'awir الله, also had his house in that locality. Then from the Nuria, I would go back to the Badriya. Badriya is the, the Masjid of uh, Imam Badruddin Al-Hassan, where he is buried. Sheikh Ahmad Habbad is buried there now, next to uh, Imam Badruddin Al-Hassani. Attend the Majlis Salah Al-Nabi, held by Sheikh Ahmed Habbad. After the Majlis Salah Al-Nabi and Salatul Asr, go to the house of Sheikh. Ali, uh, uh, after eating at his house, leaving the house and reaching Jami' Shamsia in Al-Muhajireen. So I would catch a bus, get to Jami' Shamsia, and attending the dars of Sheikh Shaykh Nour And this was a holiday. This was a Friday was a holiday. You do it every Friday. This was a routine every Juma all of 2005, most of 2006. Then the 2007-2008, the time I spent in Shah.
0: So you've got alama, you've got predecessors, everyone in Damascus,
1: in, SubhanAllah. So it must have been an uplifting spiritual place to be and study. And I believe it still is. So you have the likes of Sheikh Fuaz Nimr, who teaches in Al-Jamil Umuwi. Sheikh Muhammad Juma is still there. Is it still safe to go there, Sayyidin? It's uh, safe to go if you are not British, because with us, British passport holders, uh, there is a problem in terms of the, our government, mm-hmm. the British government, and in, in its recognition of the current government. But if you have a Pakistani passport, you can travel from Karachi to Damascus very easily. Okay. Many Pakistani ulama travel to Damascus and many Syrian ulama travel to Pakistan regularly. Alhamdulillah. Okay. And in terms of your studies with these teachers, In terms of fiqh, what school and what school would you fall under? So, some people they became suspicious that I am Shafi'i, but I am not Shafi'i, I I am Hanafi. And I studied Hanafi fiqh with these teachers and all the ulama that I studied with here in India, also. Alhamdulillah. What about your school of theology? Ashari. And why? So, there's not much difference between Ashari and Maturidi, but I have always identified myself as Ashari because Ashari is inclusive of Maturidi and all those seven semantical differences I adopt the Ashari position. Al-Imam Zaid Al-Kawthuri, he states, um, one third of the Ahna, Hanafis are Ashari. Okay. One third of the Hanafis are Ashari, so two thirds are Maathuridi. And in terms
0: of uh, Sayyidi, that's your theology, so then you've got Ashari. Did you see many scholars and your teachers subscribe to the athari uh, uh or
1: was it just Ashari Maturidis? So the Ahlul Sham, the Ulama of Sham, they have Hanabila, who are Athari. And there is even Jamil Hanabila on the mountain, Mount Pasun. And there is a group of Ulama who are Athari, Hanabila. But of course we know those Hanabila Atharis, they are very respectful of the Sheikh Muhyuddin ibn Arabi. They adopt many Ashari positions. So the Hanabila in Jazeera al-Arab, in Arabia today, who are influenced by the Wahhabi sect, they will not see them as the same type of Hanabi. Okay. So could that be because
0: in Damascus, you had all three theologies living, breathing together, uh, whereas in specific areas around the world, that may not be the case. There could be one dominant theology, which means, you know, they don't hear the views of the others.
1: In real life, I'm sure they read the books, that was not the case in Makkah Al-Mukarramah. So, if I were to place scholarship from the type of scholarship that I would write, you have Ahlul Makkah Al-Mukarramah, the scholars of Makkah Al-Mukarramah, and the, the scholars of the top, the top, and both overlap and are very similar. But say- Sayyid Abbas Alawi would say to me, whenever you give fatwa, always look at the fatwa of my father, meaning Sayyid Alawi. And I said, why? And he said, because we live in Makkah al and we are exposed to everything. Oh. So we see things from various perspectives. So, but Ahlul Najd, in the time of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, even now Qasim, these regions, they are not exposed as much as the Ahlul Makkah, the people of Makkah." That makes
0: sense, because you've got Hajj coming on, everyone's coming in there, so there'll be times to exchange IDs. and And regular Umrah. Mm. Alhamdulillah Sayyidi, in terms of the hardest thing for you in your journey of study. So tell us any obstacles or something you found difficult, even fatigue. Some people endeavor in studying Islam, but it can be a little bit difficult. So what motivation would you give and what what obstacles did
1: you face personally? So the motivation for studying for me were the likes of Sayyid Muhammad bin Alawi. Ta'ala. So you knew him before you met him? Yes, because Sheikh Gibril had translated so many works that we would read as youngsters in the late 90s. And he would give citations from Sayyid Muhammad bin Ali Al-Maliki. And then many of our ulama here in the UK would give citations from Sayyid Muhammad bin Ali Al-Maliki. So I did actual research before going to Makkah. Where does Sayyid Muhammad bin Alawi, they, we had Google in those days, if you remember. So I would check the and I found out the Rusaifa district, Masjid Noor. So I went myself at one point to his home after talking and conversing with the taxi driver in Makal Karama. So he was a very uh, major figure in terms of encouragement to study in terms of uh, Hadith science. Um, and then I acquired his books and the books of the Sheikh Abdullah Surajuddin, Rahimahullah. These are very inspiring people. And then the difficulties you face uh, in terms of studying, I saw people facing different types of difficulties, but the difficulties for me in the early studies were, was, was Sabr, patience, meaning there's a, a fruit of the studies that you are Waiting for in anticipation of. But when the fruit does not come early, what is this? What is the saying? <inaudible> Whoever attempts to hurry something, he will be punished by being prohibited from it. Mm. So you need intense patience. So when you study Sarf, nahw, seeing the result of the Sarf and Nahab may take time. When you study Balaga, mantiq, uh, rhetoric and logic and the application of this, Usul al-fiqh, mm. uh, the application of Usul al-fiqh. This takes intense patience in terms of seeing the result and the benefits of studying all of us. Sayyidi, would you say for Muslims,
0: everyone, like the fard al subjects, it should be everyone's obligation to continue to study them? A lot of Muslims, it's the first time they've probably even heard the obligatory sciences, the bare minimum. Would you say, message to Muslims in the UK and, and beyond, Regarding the sciences, is continue to pursue them all your life? Or is there a stopping point? Or is there
2: supposed to be well, stopping while
1: I was or conducting a class here in the masjid, one of the students who continuously asks about money and material things, in response to him, I said, You can have patience with the lack of material wealth, you can have patience with the lack of worldly prestige, but you can never survive jahad, ignorance. So ignorance must always be remedied. A second thing I said to another group of students was as you grow older, if you do not do talabul ilm, you will become stupider. You will become more stupid. Stupider is a word, but you will become more stupid. So that's the reality. If you don't do talabul ilm, seeking knowledge of Quran and Sunnah, uh, the person becomes stupid as they grow old. But say, what about nowadays? And because that's not referring to lack of wisdom. Wisdom well, is something else.
0: What well, about people nowadays say, saying, oh, well, I've got YouTube now. This this is enough for me on my way to work. I'll listen to a lecture here. God, who knows what Sheikh that is, where, what their background is, but that's, that should be enough for me.
1: It's not the same, I'll tell you why. So here in Birmingham, I studied Rasul Rasool Waqsaim. He set up his own madrasa in 2003. Myself and a few of the students were the first batch of students that studied at that madrasa in the, between the years uh, 2003 and the whole of 2004. So when I returned back from Syria in 2003, mid-2003 and then for the whole of 2004, during that period, I would walk from home to his madrasa, which was 45 miles. So his madrasa is located in Washwood Heath. My parents' home is located in Spar Brook. I would, me, not only me, other students, we would walk sometimes together four to five miles to his madrasa. Then, when the class would finish, after f- five hours of class, so we would start at nine, finish around two or three, depending on the day, we would walk back. Years later, one of those fellow students who studied with me, who is a teacher now, said to me, The students now, many of them have cars, yet they become lazy in driving to class. But he said they do not acquire and ascertain that type of knowledge that we attained. And I said, why do you think this is? He said, because we gave the respect to the knowledge. What was the respect? We walked to the knowledge. And then the knowledge gave us something back. We held that knowledge in esteem. We gave value to the knowledge. So we went to the knowledge, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us some knowledge. Is it like saying, like Imam
0: Malik was it when uh, Harun and, and uh, Rashid and the other brother was brought to him and uh, their father said, Imam, teach my children? And he said, You've got to pursue knowledge, you've got to get to knowledge. You can't expect knowledge to come to you.
1: Yes. So uh, you said regarding online knowledge, mm. firstly, there's no processing, processing knowledge. So knowledge is not just memorization, it's processing and then practicing. Processing is with the teacher. Practicing the knowledge, how do we embody that knowledge? We observe that in the teachers. So even if they were not my teachers in terms of formal knowledge, awliyaullah saliheen, the friends of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are embodiment of the knowledge. So observing the likes of a Shaykh Ahmad habbal rahimahullah the Katani's, also, some of the Katani's, Katani Mashaikh, uh, all these Mashaikh, various Mashaikh, they were an embodiment of practicing that knowledge. Just want to let you know,
0: we've got our new Dean Chat mugs. Imagine yourself in the office, having a cup of tea and saying, how was your weekend? And they're asking you about what's Deen Chat. Break, great way of breaking the ice, talking about Islam, inshaAllah. Um, like I said, with all these podcasts, please subscribe, like and share. Insha'Allah, we're trying to change the way we absorb media uh, for the sake of Allah. So, Insha'Allah, we're going to continue with our guest, Sheikh Asar Rashid. Uh, Sayyidi, we were talking about um, people studying using YouTube um, and you were just mentioning how it's important you learn key lessons
1: with a teacher, studying with a teacher. Um, so, I was mentioning processing, processing of knowledge, and then embodiment of that knowledge is through teachers. Okay. So, when you study with multiple teachers, you see how they embody an Islam or servitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and you process the knowledge, and then you also embody the knowledge the way by emulating your teachers. In that case, Sayyidi, you mentioned
0: how um, in Syria. You, you would participate in Hadra, so I'm assuming that's a practice not accustomed to you in Birmingham. So you, was that something you
1: saw in Syria? what is the Hadra really? So the Hadra is a form of Dhikrullah that is carried out by uh, primarily North African Sufis. Okay. And the practice was introduced into Asham also in Damascus and throughout the world. It's where they stand up, chant the name of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and move in the Vikrullah. Say, so, are you able to say? So, do we have evidence where Sahabas did that? Do we know if? if so I'm, 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 the issue, some have disputed the hadra, meaning in terms of fiqh, is it permitted or not? But there are some ulama who have written on the permissibility of the hadra. The likes of Imam Jalaluddin Suyuti, who permitted the hadra. Imam Badruddin Al-Hassani Rahimullah and many of the ulama, some of the Kattani mashaykh, like Sheikh Abdul Hayy Al-Kattani. But it's an issue of fiqh, jurisprudence, not an issue of usul din Some of the masyaykh have said that when you, when after the war in Syria and the shiukh left Syria, they said, do not introduce the practice where, where the practice is strange and people are not accustomed to the practice. Okay. But in itself, it's not a major issue in terms of carrying out the Hadra. The likes of Sheikh Abdul Rahman al-Shaghuri, uh, carried out Hadra fervently and instructed these um, students in doing Hadra also. You've also got a, a huge
0: Chechen following who, who do it, who during the Soviet war were actively using it as a war dance before, just preparing themselves. Um, spiritually, I guess, before battle. So you can see in different cultures it's there. Um, alhamdulillah.
1: In Sudan also. Sudan. In Turkey, in Malawi, there are tribal war dances but at the, the Maudit. Just because they do it doesn't it make it right though. You see, to say it's impermissible, you need some decisive proof to say this practice is impermissible. It goes back to the discussion on bid'ah and taksimul bid'ah, types of bid'ah. Some of the bid'ah are disputed like qiyam. Uh, in this uh, Sha'aban, uh, Salah in the Masjid, in mid Sha'aban, was disputed, Ibn Salah, Rahmahullah, wrote on it, and Al-Iz bin Abdul Salam. And they had a war of monographs. One of them considered it bad bidah, the other one said good bidah. Mm-hmm. So the Hadra may fall into that category.
0: And, and would, would this be something you do in your Masjid or in Birmingham? It? It's not
1: a common practice in Birmingham or in our community. It's something I participated in Syria, Ashan, especially with the Qatani Mashaikh. So, a Shaykh Taj al-Qatani, Every Tuesday, he would have a Majlis of after Salat al-Asr, which I would attend without fail. And he would carry out the Hadra. Sometimes a Shaykh Ahmed Habbal would do the Hadra and other Mashaykh also would carry out the Hadra, but for me it's not an issue of usool al-Din, uh, if people avoid it, it's fine,
2: it's an issue of Farooq. Mm-hmm. So I have a question about it, is there an, an origin within the from the time of the Prophet yes. where this is practiced, so I've heard stories like, in, in, once, once upon a time in the mosque, there was the Habashi Sahabas uh, doing a war dance singing Muhammadan Abdul Saleh, Muhammad and Abdul Saleh. These are some of the proofs that the likes of Imam
1: Jalaluddin Sayyuti, they present as proof of the validity of Hadra, the the rocking of Ja'far radiallahu anhu. But the people who respond, they respond by saying the, the dance of the Africans was an actual war dance in preparation of Jihad. But just to note on this, the Qatani's were uh, or are people of Jihad, the Qatani family. Yeah. They are a people of jihad. Sheikh Abdul Rahman Shahoudi fought against the French colonials in Syria. So the real Sufis are people of jihad. So if you to, to, to how do you delineate false Sufis from real Sufis? One way is that a real Sufi will discuss jihad, jihad in the way of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. And secondly, they will not be obsessed in accumulating material wealth. These are two ways. So if you want to know this Sufi, is he real? Check if he discusses jihad in the way of Allah, fighting in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in places of occupation like in Palestine. And secondly, is he just accumulating wealth from his murids or is he a person who earns his own wealth? He doesn't live off the These are two ways of checking.
2: So like Sheikh, like Sheikh Mukhtar, Sheikh Abdul qadra Jizayiri, and the one from Dagestan, Sheikh
1: Shami, Dagestani. These are the, and then even in our recent times, mm. you've had Mushaik who fulfilled these conditions.
0: So tell us, the about your uh, studies with Sheikh Shami, a little bit more. How was that? How did that go? How did he? I know he has a, a big following in the UK that comes along.
1: So, he's a, a, a clinician by background and also a scholar in the Masjid. So, Sheikh Samir al Nas has regular Quran classes in Sheikh Mahidin ibn Arabi Masjid every morning, where around 70 to 100 students congregate every morning. At that time, there were more, and they read the Quran to him. So, the style of the Quran style in the Mishnah is you, they give you a small book, or you, you purchase a small book. You read to the Shaykh, he corrects you, then he uh, places his signature and the date, okay? And then every day you recite to him until he keeps correcting you, until you read the entire Musaf by heart to the Shaykh, with corrected Tajweed and the Qira'ah, I mean Qira'ah to Hafs mainly. And then he gives you Ijazah. So I read most of the Jews Amma to him, most of the Jews Amma. And I still have the book, small booklet. And with him, with Sheikh Anas, who was also in the same masjid, I read Al-Jazariya, the Jude. And then with Sheikh Samr nas I completed uh, Muntakhab al-Husami. I read the entire book cover to cover to him in his clinic. So he would give me a specific time, me and one more student, uh, Mulana Rashid, we would go on that particular day and we would recite the Muntakhab al-Husami to him. And then we completed the Hussami, we started Al-Itqam Fi Ulumi Al-Qur'an, we didn't complete the work, the work's too big. And then also in Al-Fathu Al-Islami, where I enrolled into the University of Al-Fath, where I would uh, attend the uh, fiqh classes, and Sheikh Samir would teach al hidayah in those classes also. So
2: in the middle of his clinic, he'd come out and teach you guys right, and go back to his clinic? The time we would go in, he would call us into the actual,
1: uh, Medical room, there would be more patients at that particular time. Oh.
0: Sayyidi, and uh, why then did you not sort of choose oh, studying in Medina Sharif, the actual university there, as opposed to Damascus? So initially, I
1: wanted to study in al Mukarramah with the Sayyid Muhammad bin Alawi. Has he got his own institute there? Yes, in his home in the Ruseifa district. He has his own a madrasa, but then I did not want to enroll in al Medina University simply because of the Wahhabi indoctrination in those places. And is that, is that still... Um, and the, the level of learning is not so deep. Okay, compared to what you, you studied in Damascus. Yes, the level is not the same. Okay. And uh, the, that, the, the Ahl Sunnah, Asha'irah, they have the best universities. So Al-Azhar, mm. Al-Azhar al-Sharif, Al-Fatuh al-Islami, uh, the Zaytuna in uh, Tunisia, Karbiyin in Morocco, uh, and the Saudatiyah in, Mak- in Makkah and Karamah. These uh, institutions are better syllabi. Alhamdulillah, so we've, we've spoken
0: a lot about your studies, the journey and the point of study. Uh, a bit more, Seydi, coming back to the UK and, and the debates you're having with uh, different people, inshallah, to promote Islam. Tell us a little bit more, sometimes, some of these uh, discussions, you know, can be interesting. You know, for the viewers to to learn and listen to what are your feedback and views and Do you have any sort of thoughts on them?
1: Most of the debates happened impromptu. Okay. So when the debate is presented in a formal challenge, very few people ever respond. <laughs> but the organic nature of the debates that have occurred. Mm was because of the, the environment and the circumstances which led to those debates happening. Would you continue taking that stance uh, due to, I guess, the environment? I'm still them? open to debates. The challenge remains the challenge and Alasma was sifat, names and attributes of Allah with the Salafis. It's still open. They've not accepted the challenge. They've not responded. The entire Western Hemisphere, the Anglosphere, the English-speaking world, which includes Canada, America, New Zealand, Australia, Europe, and Britain and South Africa, the parts of Africa, the challenge is open to debate on Al-Isma'u was Sifat because they continuously state the Ashaira the Ashaira they state this, but they need to furnish that claim. In a, in a debate format, and for Muslims
0: who are just the, the, the average Joe, this stuff could be over their heads. Could be more that academic
1: discussion. What should they concentrate on? So, people who do not understand these discussions, they should just concentrate on learning basic al-Tahawiya like the uh, Tahawi creed, uh, fiqh according to one of the methods, and, and, and associating with the ulama. And what we'll would say? Would it be helpful then to put these videos out if the vast majority probably won't
0: even grasp these concepts? Or would it be better there, is to majority,
1: there is a majority? There is a majority that listens to these discussions. So when we say for vast majority, at the same time there is a majority who do understand the nuances in these debates also. 100%. And catering for that crowd would be essential.
2: Mm-hmm. See, Islam is a deep ocean. What would you tell people who say, you know, I don't have that time to study. I'm too busy with work. What would you say to those guys? They should
1: investigate how much time do they spend on their smartphone from recent statistics. Young children spend above six hours on just social media like Instagram and TikTok. And this includes adults also. So just looking at the amount of time people spend on TikTok, social media, watching movies, watching TV programs, all of these things demonstrate that they have plenty of time to an hour a day to give time to the masjid to attend halqa the circle of knowledge or halqa to dhikr, circle of dhikr. And what practices say should
0: people do internally? Any changes, food, habits, behavior, anything you can recommend?
1: There are many changes. One would be cutting down on junk food because junk food makes junk people. Junk programs and television. And then also cutting down on the time on social media and increasing reading time, increasing our water intake. You would be surprised how much uh, various types of sugary drinks we drink and that affect our health. Increasing our reading, increasing our dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, our recitation of the Qur'an. There are so many things we can do to change our lifestyle. And so, where does this uh, take you, Sidi? What's your journey? What's your next steps then in, in Birmingham? So, Alhamdulillah, currently we have our uh, jam, our masjid here in Birmingham, one college road here, SBC, South Birmingham Central. In this masjid, we have our dars e program running. And we have, Alhamdulillah, 40, above 40 students studying the Darsim Adham, catering for these inner city areas. So most of the Muslims live in inner city areas, these masajid cater for them. So the challenges they face, people here, they can become rich and move out of these areas and abandon the areas totally, or they can um, contribute to the benefit, to the betterment of these areas, the betterment of the Muslims who remain, the majority of Muslims who remain in these areas. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, young people there are many challenges. They could do haram or haramat, living in a free and open country. And this is not only in England; it's in Muslim majority countries also. Yeah, in countries like Dubai, in Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. in Egypt, young people they can go to nightclubs. They could go to haram with the alcohol with drug addiction, selling drugs, making easy money through haram means. These are all the challenges facing these young people. So what benefit can the masjid give those people? What service can the masjid give? So people, they collect all these charities. They collect tens and thousands of pounds and then they even charge for courses. They charge charge people thousands of pounds, even though the masjid is already collecting tens and thousands. So the masjid is already collecting tens of thousands, but yet they charge for the courses, mm. but here, Alhamdulillah, the, the course is free. Alhamdulillah. So we have the children, the madrasa children, They we have a charge for them, for the Quran, but the advanced studies are
0: free of charge. So you're saying say the mosques now need to change their objective, change how they're managed, because they're probably mismanaged really facilitates uh, things for the community,
1: benefiting the community. So things in Birmingham have started to change. Some of the masajids have set up good libraries. They have free courses running. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the masajids have courses for the younger people, not only our masjid. The other masjid masjid, uh, some may be ahead of us mm-hmm. in certain regards. But the, the times have moved on and the, the masjid must provide a service.
0: Tell me about the things you're doing, Sadie. Um, behind closed doors, I hear you had one book out already. Any more? Or what's the existing idea? So that? the recent
2: book
1: that's been released is Navigating the End of Time, which mm-hmm. has just been printed. It's a 400-page book. It's a book that spans a journey of a quarter of a century, 25 years, of inquiring on the subject of akhirul the end of time. It's refuting the likes of Imran Hussein, a charlatan from Trinidad and Tobago, refuting his ideas. So it's a good read, even for his followers to follow through. And Islam and Satism was the previous book. InshaAllah, I'm working on other things also. I think you see student of knowledge and scholars from
0: the past. They were really prolific writers in their books. So it's good to see within the UK, inshaAllah, we have uh, our our teachers, our scholars, uh, writing these books. Um, I wanted to finally ask you, say the regarding the Islam Answer website. We always ask this to our guests. If you had a chance to look at it, um, what's your feedback around?
1: the So I've glanced through the website. It's well designed. You have uh, contributors. I've been requested to contribute myself. So inshallah, in the future, if I have time, I will contribute to sure. the answer uh, to the questions. And the website seems fine. It's in accordance with the Hanafi fiqh. I just hope that the. Uh, the people who run the website give the correct answers. So we can't guarantee that, that all the answers are always correct. But it's a good resource for people to go back to and cool. check. You can do muqarana with other websites and check. Awesome. Of course, because we mentioned the online mm. uh, learning aspect, that the online knowledge must be processed. And also they should have interaction
0: with living mashaik. And on that note, say the Islam Answer delivers a weekly, daily courses For the Muslim community, it's an opportunity, like Sheikh says, if you've read an article to uh, ask uh, Sheikh Nur ad-Din, one of the main writers, of some of the the questions and responses, inshallah. So please do attend and uh, participate in in a lot of the courses. Uh, But Sheikh, I just want to say a sincere thank you. Uh, You took a lot of time out. Uh, You smell great. I just (laughs) want to let you know and let the viewers know. They won't know that. And I appreciate your time and the brothers who, who supported us today. Uh, Sunil, so no, any last words? No, just because I don't have every time, so, you know, time, I've learned a lot from this and thank you for sharing your experiences. <laughs> and, uh, and on that note, brothers and sisters, please subscribe, like, and share. Uh, and if you want to see Sheikh Hassad again on our podcast for a more specific topic, let us know. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.